Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, at some point in everybody's career, every one of us have to eventually work with a coworker or a boss who is quote unquote difficult, at least from our point of view, and who ultimately in some ways drains the joy out of work. Now, if you haven't had that experience yet, I promise you it's coming at some moment in time and often some moments in time. These are often very complicated situations, and it's hard to sort out what do you actually do. And we're not advocating that everybody quit and run off and find a new job because you're going to find another one of those personalities somewhere along the line. So what we want to do today is to understand what it takes to really tackle some of these more challenging profiles, kind of what can you do. And just a heads up, one size doesn't fit all. So I think you're going to be excited. There's lots of action, lots of hints, and a great discussion coming. My guest today is Amy Gallo. She's a workplace expert who writes and speaks about gender, about interpersonal dynamics, about difficult conversations, feedback, effective communication, I should add conflict, and just about everything else that gets involved in conversations with people. The book we're talking about today is Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, parenthesis, even difficult people, in parenthesis. She's also the author of the Harvard Business Review Guide to Dealing with Conflict and hundreds of other articles for Harvard Business Review. For the past three years, she's co-hosted HBR's popular Women at Work podcast, frequently sought out by media for her perspectives on workplace dynamics, conflict, difficult conversations, featured in the New York Times, Fast Company, Marketplace, BBC, and ABC, which is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation for people around the world. Go, Amy. Well done. And welcome to the show. Wanda, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, I want to start the way I always start, which is what got you intrigued with this? Like, why did you start around the journey of difficult people? Is there a personal story here? I mean, there is a personal story in that I was, I've just always been interested in interpersonal dynamics, how people relate to one another. Um, that started from very early, I think about the, you know, elementary school, um, you know, playground where, you know, someone yelled fight. I was probably always the first one who showed up, um, not because I was wanted to fight, but I was always interested in why, what's happening there. Um, and then, you know, throughout my um, sort of young adulthood, also really drawn and, and noticed that any job I had, but particularly a job I had as a management consultant, I was not as interested in the work we were doing, but in how people interacted in, um, you know, in in getting that work done. I mean, I remember walking out of a strategy meeting with this one of our big clients. It was a, all day long. We were facilitating this meeting. We had the smartest minds in the room. This company had lots of resources to dedicate to this strategy. And I remember walking out and thinking, that's not going to succeed, right? This is, these people can't get along. They can't communicate. And yes, we got to a strategy, but implementing this strategy is going to add, 
involve endless interactions, conversations, tough decisions, trade-offs, and I'm not sure these people are equipped to do that. And that really what is what sparked sort of the moment for me where I thought, I'm less interested in helping companies figure out what their strategy should be. And I'm more interested in helping people figure out how to manage their relationships with one another and have productive, uh, you know, effective, maybe even fulfilling um, conversations with one another. Yeah. Um, I think, I think we've said some very similar things over the course of our professional careers I have said, I think the strategy that any one company in an industry deploys is not dramatically different than the basics of the strategy from one of their competitors. The difference is, is whether they can make the trade-offs and the actions from those trade-offs that are going to really make that strategy hum and move forward. That's okay. the real game. But those trade-offs come in my language in conversations. That's You're not right. having those conversations effectively. You ain't getting there. So I wholeheartedly yeah. with you on how important this is. I also think, I suspect like you, Amy, that the teams that win, the companies that win in the next decade and beyond are going to be the ones that figure out how to do conflict well. That's right. Right. And to be clear, they're not the ones who don't have conflict, right? They're the ones who figure out how to do conflict well, exactly like you said. How to talk about it, how to resolve it, how to move it forward, how to not sweep it under the carpet, and all of those things I think are just, and we're not doing enough to no. train people on how to do this one. So more coming on that one. All right. So now one of the things that you, a big point that you make at the beginning of the book is that um, poor relationships are, and connections are having a dramatic impact on work satisfaction and ultimately performance. Tell us that argument really briefly. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two arguments, one of which is that um, incivility. So if we think about this is the the term the academics use, there's in particular um, Christine Porath, who's a um, researcher whose work I followed for for many years. And um, I quote her quite a bit in, in the book, incivility. So when we're when we are not pleasant to one another, when we send a snarky email, when we have those sort of unpleasant conflicts, um, has just such a detrimental effect on us as individuals. We have experienced more stress, um, we're less resilient, but they also impact our ability to collaborate. We're less creative. Um, we are let we can't communicate as well when we are on the receiving end of that incivility. The same goes actually if you observe the incivility. So you don't even have to have been on the receiving end of the the snarky comment. You just have to have witnessed that that happen. So incivility really fractures our relationships and hinders collaboration, creativity, all of the things we need to do well at work. And it feels bad, right? And there's some really um, interesting research done about, this was actually about married couples. They looked at healing time for couples with, they made small incisions, not nothing deep, but on their arm, and then watched the healing time for those cuts. And for couples who reported having animosity in their relationship, those wounds took much longer to heal than couples who did not report animosity. So we also know that incivility is having a real effect on our body and on not just the way we interact with one another, but the way we feel and even the way our body functions. So that's sort of one way in which we know that there's an impact from, from not getting along. 
The other is if you look at the research around friends at work and people who do actually get along, there is just such a huge upside. One of my favorite pieces of research was done by a group of professors at Rutgers who looked at um, people who said they had a best friend at work and tracked their performance reviews. And you actually, people who said they had a best friend at work had higher performance ratings. So having friends, caring about one another, even having love, what what we often think of as companionate love, um, not romantic love, but the the love of we are invested in one another's success, we have each other's back, right? Those those relationships tend to not only again feel good, but they impact our ability to communicate, be resilient, feel less stress, collaborate, and have an impact on the team and the organization. That's powerful collection of research and, you know, respect that there's many different researchers who are coming to bear on some of this. But I think the thing that's shocking to me in that one is just listening to someone else be incivil to another person. So think a boss shouting at somebody else, even if it was deserved or, you know, a microaggression, if you think about that from a diversity point of view or two co-workers just going at it, just witnessing that, even if I know it doesn't involve me at all, decrease increases stress and lowers the collaboration and the whole creativity and a whole bunch of other things and satisfaction at work. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now, sadly, we can't give everybody a magic pill that says no civility will go forth (laughs) from this moment in time. Right. But I'm presuming that if I can get smarter at understanding how to cope, what strategies I can use, I'm going to reduce the negative impact of those personalities. Is that the right vein? Absolutely. And as you said in in your opening, Wanda, you are going to deal with incivility. There's not, we're not going to eradicate every workplace. Um, Humans are messy. I mean, I'm sure I was uncivil to several people this week and I may not have even noticed, right? There's of course, we try to be nice. We try to be kind-hearted. We try to be polite and respectful, but we work in stressful situations under a lot of pressure. So there are going to be those moments. So it's really about figuring out, one, how do we reduce them if we can? How do we deal with them when they do come up? Because they will come up. How do we make sure they um, don't have as much stress on us? How do we sort of neutralize some of our more negative or tricky relationships and then also, how do we bounce back more quickly from them? I mean, I, I'm sure I'm not the only person who, um, who has stayed up till you know 3 a.m. or woken up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. thinking about you know all of the terrible things someone said, or even just that one rude comment someone made and ruminated about it, right? And what I what I really when people ask me sort of what was your goal in writing this book, my goal was like fewer sleepless nights, right? I just want people to be feel more comfortable that conflict's okay. It happens. I have the skills I need to deal with it and to move. So the goal isn't to turn everyone into your best friend at work. The goal is to have at least neutral to hopefully positive relationships and to use your mental energy for the right things, not being consumed by what's happening around you necessarily, or some of the negativity that's going on, but really focusing on the positive aspects of those interactions. Right. Well, I think we all can. And I want to talk about this concept, difficult. What does it mean to be difficult? Okay. Mm -hmm. 
one of the things that I say about myself and is true of me is that I can be incredibly task focused. And so when I have a task, a thing to finish, I'm walking down the hall, I've got something I've got to execute on, and my mind is on that. I can literally not see someone walking by me. Mm -hmm. Or I don't stop to have much of a conversation with them because I don't want to forget what it is I need to do or write or say or whatever it is. So very tech can be very test focused. That can come across to others as being difficult in in ways, rude, uncaring. It's never the intention, but I certainly can appreciate how behavior comes across as negative. So how do you talk about this thing called, quote, difficult? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's funny. You reminded me of a conversation I had with my team this morning about, I'm also very task oriented. Um, And for me, it's less about noticing what's going on around me and more about wanting to check things off the to-do list. So I'm like, did that get done? Did that get done? Right. And then I'm like, am I naggy? Am I micromanaging? Right. And it's not, it's not that I don't trust them to do it. I just want to be able to cross it off. I just wanted to know it's done. And I'm sure there are ways in which I am seen as difficult for that as well. Now, the ch- the challenge is we that label, we want to really apply that label when we don't like someone else's behavior. So someone on my team who does not like to be micromanaged, I mean, no one really likes to be micromanaged, but someone who feels micromanaged might want to really be say, Amy is difficult. And mm-hmm. the problem is that immediately becomes a distancing move, right? They're difficult, I'm easy. They're pessimistic, I'm optimistic. They're they're tough to get along with, I'm easy to get along with. Whatever it is, we try to, we sort of use it as a distancing tool. And what really, what, you know, and I do have the word difficult on the on my book cover. I, I We had a long conversation with my publishers about, could we put air quotes around it? Um, which we all agreed was probably going to be a little more um, uh, confusing than it was going to be elucidating. But I don't like calling people difficult because who among us hasn't been difficult at times? Um, We can have difficult dynamics, difficult interactions. That said, and this was my publisher's strong argument, is that when you are experiencing that incivility, you're having that tough relationship, some tension has come up maybe in a positive relationship, you think you're dealing with someone who's being difficult. And that's that. those are the words you use in your mind. So of course, but I, I hesitate. I and I think you can hear it in my voice, and I I can hear it in your question too. Is that it's not as easy as saying some people are difficult and some people are not. It's very rare you find someone who people believe is universally difficult. There are right. chances are someone in the organization actually likes working with them or doesn't mind working with them, and right. so we have to keep that in mind as we sort of use that label. I always say to people who, you know, how do I work with this personality is that assuming you're at mid-level in an organization, everybody has some redeeming value. Mm-hmm. They may have qualities of their personality or their behavior set that everybody doesn't love, but they have some redeeming value or they would be gone, yeah, especially yeah. at that level. So yeah. the challenge is to, to for in my mind, is to not just put the label of difficult on everything, but to recognize that for you... It's a difficult profile. That's right. Yeah, and that's right. And it's not universally true. So I think you're saying the exact same thing, that it's much more situational and it's also much more my style driven, I think is what we're saying. All right, let's dig in, okay? Because yeah. um, I think one of the fascinating things about the book is, you know, dealing with several of these different profiles 
And before mm-hmm. I dig in, I want to do something you said. You, It's not one size fits all. There's not a single strategy to deploy. Say a little bit more about why you found that to be so important. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the advice about out there about how to deal with people who are pushing your buttons or, you know, having a difficult conversation is very generic. Like, here's how you do it. Here's seven principles for how you do it. To be fair, I, I share that advice too. My previous book was, I write lots of articles like that. But I also knew that how you deal with someone who's overly pessimistic or a know-it-all or a political operator is going to be very different depending on what pattern of behavior you're dealing with. And what I wanted to do with this book is to give specific advice depending on what that pattern of behavior is. And that's why I came up with these, I call them archetypes. Um, You know, they're really patterns of behavior. I think that's the best way to to sum them up is that when you observe this in in another person and it's pushing your buttons, you're finding it really challenging to deal with, what can you do for that specific situation? Okay, great. All right. So now let's dig in. Let's take my favorite, your favorite, everybody's, well, I should say least favorite personality <laughs> situation profile to deal with. And that's when we're going to label somebody as passive aggressive, or we feel that they're being more passive aggressive. So give me a little bit of a definition, give me an example, and then let's talk about what do you do with that kind of uh, profile? Yeah. So the the classic definition of passive aggressive is is saying or behaving in one way, but actually doing something different. So this actually the the label began in the military um, in the early 20th century when they needed um, a way to define um, soldiers who weren't compliant with their officers' orders, and they called them passive aggressive. It's actually got a long history of um, since then of whether it's a you know, a technical diagnostic tool or whether, but we really use it now to just describe that behavior where we say or do one thing, but we mean another. So that might mean, for example, you ignore a deadline after you said you would meet it, or you're promised to send an email that you actually never send, or you might, you know, display body language that indicates you're angry or upset. But when someone asks how you're doing, you say, I'm fine. Right. And just sort of move on. You know, it even can be disguised in sort of backhanded compliments. Um, someone who's behaving passive aggressively might say, you know, I love your relaxed style, when really what they mean is I think you're lazy. Right. So it's there's all these ways in which they're just sort of dodging the the directness that we expect from other people. Right. All right. So I have somebody who promises doesn't deliver. Mm-hmm. who looks like they're in agreement with a strategy, with a direction, and then works behind the scenes to go in the opposite direction or just never works. Have somebody who gives a compliment but actually means not very complimentary. We might call that spin, but it's the do one thing, say the opposite. Yeah. Um, how do I deal with this kind of situation? Yeah, so it, it the reason this is... A- many of our least favorite awesome, um, archetypes is because it's it's really hard to deal with. And I feel like it can be, you know, quite, it can feel like it's shadow boxing. That's what a friend um, and, and fellow author, Andy McKee says, is that dealing with passive aggressive people feels like you're trying to land a punch and they just sort of keep dodging. And so, and punch hopefully not being actually the aggression, but but the comment, the the question, 
Um, so one of the things you want to do, of course, is to avoid calling them passive aggressive. No one ever comes home from work at the end of the day and says, I was so passive aggressive at work, right? They might think, oh, I was petty or, you know, I didn't want to be as direct because I knew they couldn't hear what I had to say. And so instead of doing that, I think you really want to engage the person as much as you can and reflect on have I set up the situation where they don't feel comfortable telling me exactly what they think how they feel, what their opinions are. Now, not to say you have to own the problem or own the issue in the relationship, but is there a way that you might be contributing to it? And I think that's important to do for any type of challenging behavior, but especially with with passive aggression. Have you made it clear you're willing to hear other opinions? You're willing to be disagreed with? Um, And then you want to really focus on what you suspect the underlying message is. So if someone says, um, you know, you notice their body language is um, they look upset or they look frustrated and you ask how they, they is everything okay? And they say, fine. You know, I, instead of just taking that, you might observe and say, oh, because your body language is, is, is giving me a different message. And I just want you to know, I really am curious genuinely and how you feel. Right. So not your that you're catching them lying, right? That's not no one wants to be sort of cornered in that way, but that you observe a different behavior than what they're saying, or a different feeling or even message than what they're saying. And you're open to hearing it. I think those two things are really key. Now, many times the passive aggressive person will just be like, nope, I'm fine, and move on. But what you've done is you've put them on notice that I'm observing your behavior. I'm very interested in hearing what you think, and I'm open to it, right? And I think that's, you're starting to sort of lay the groundwork. The other thing you can do is sort of have team norms. So if the issue is that they promise to do something and then they never follow up after the meeting, maybe there's a way as a team you can create an accountability measure for that, right? So we send out a Google Doc at the end of the meeting with a list of what everyone has agreed to do. And when you've done it, it's you on you to mark when, you, when you've done it. So that way, when you all get together again, there's evidence of what's happened. And there's no disagreement about, oh, no, I didn't say that. Or, well, I didn't, I didn't think you really needed it done by this time. Like That's another passive aggressive move is often like, oh, I didn't know it was that important. Or I didn't know you needed it done. Um, so that you can sort of rely on the peer pressure of the group as well um, to do that. All right. So, Amy, I guess so let's try a scenario. Let's say mm-hmm. in leading a team, we're sitting around the team having a discussion about a particular choice that has to come. And it's important that everybody's bought in because there are consequences and trade-offs as there always are on some of these big choices. And as a leader, I want to make sure I've really got everybody on board not someone being passive aggressive, meaning saying yes to my face and then working in the opposite direction somewhere else. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. So I noticed the body language. So I want to kind of demonstrate to the team that I really want to hear their concerns before we mm-hmm. sign the deal. What are the concerns? I want to make sure everybody's spoken. Mm-hmm. I notice somebody isn't speaking, but mm-hmm. I suspect they're concerned. Yeah. Calling them out in public, does that work or is it better to do private? So I think there's two things going on there. One, I think calling someone out in public, especially someone who you know to occasionally behave passive aggressively is not going to work. You know, you're just going to get, no, I have no concerns. And then, like you said, they're going to work against the initiative or the decision behind the scenes. So I don't think you necessarily want to do that. Having a conversation in private 
depending on the person may go better, right? They may feel more comfortable actually being more direct in a one-on-one with you. Um, the But the other option is to actually Im- implement a round robin when a big decision is going to be made that the entire team needs to, to agree on is we're going to go around the room and I want everyone to express one concern they have and then tell us, can you, can you commit to this decision or not? So that way it's not just on them to raise the concerns, but everyone actually has voiced the concerns. Now, not only have you gotten the passive aggressive person to ideally open up, maybe not, but you've normalized the ability to raise concerns. And now you have heard all these concerns so you can actually carry forward the decision with those in mind. So it's oftentimes what you're trying to do in terms of getting the passive aggressive person to participate in a productive manner is good for you as the leader and is good for the entire team. Um, so ra- And that's why I hesitate to sort of pinpoint because I think the passive aggressive person when cornered just doubles down on the behavior. So you really want to sort of bring in the group, invite them in to contribute along with everyone else. I'm thinking about a top team that I'm working with at the moment where an individual on that top team is not supportive of a particular way a thing is being implemented. Maybe not disagreeing with the principle, but doesn't like the way it's being implemented. And in the team and with the boss says very clearly all the right words, but behind the scenes is not implementing. And what is so difficult in those situations is it's hard to know as the boss what somebody's actually doing behind the scenes. Because you don't mm-hmm. want to assume people are saying one thing and doing the opposite. That just feels like you think you can trust your team. And then yeah. suddenly to find that that's what's going on. And yeah. maybe for good cause too, fairly. Yeah. You know? yeah. So well, and t- I've seen, yeah, I've, se- I've seen that on, on top teams I've worked with too. And one of the things we try to do is is sort of implement a, a norm around disagree, then commit, which is that it's, it is fine for you to disagree. It is fine for you to voice the opinion. But when it comes, push comes to shove, we need commitment if we're going to move things forward. Um, and even working with an individual who is um, sort of pushes back in that way, I'll often try to get them to imagine. Imagine if someone else on this team challenged the the implementation once we had all sort of agreed for your initiative. Imagine how how much the strife that would create. Um and what's another way? What's a more productive way of, of expressing this disagreement? All right. We're right back around to the co- where we started the conversation, which is, can we do conflict? Meaning, can we have the difficult conversation in the room? Can I say, I don't buy this, I don't want to do it, and yeah. be dealt with appropriately, okay? Yes. Or do we silence that stuff in the service of being, quote, nice? That's right. <laughs> or whatever, committed. Um, is it... Do you find that this passive aggressive prototype is more a personality style, meaning that individual is always going to be that way, mm-hmm. or is it more situational? You know, I think it's it could be both. And in that, and I know that's not a very satisfying answer, but there is there are people psychologically speaking, there are people who tend to be more passive aggressive. They tend to be rejection sensitive. So there are people who really don't like to be told no or to be rejected in any way. So they say yes when they mean no. They smile when they're actually going to fight the, the initiative from the back. Um, so there is that per, sort of personality type that that psychologists describe. However, 
I don't know anyone who's never behaved passive aggressively, right? I mean, I can think of five times I did it in the past few months, and I don't actually identify as someone who behaves passive aggressively. I think most people in my life would say, oh, no, she's very direct. But of course, we're capable of doing it when we fear that rejection, or we fear we're not going to be heard, or we're not getting our way. I mean, that's for me, the trigger. It's like, I've tried to say this is what I need. I've tried to say this is what I need. And then I'm like, okay, I'm just going to be passive aggressive about it because I have, I feel trapped. Now, right. hopefully I, I learned the lesson over time and hopefully most people do that it's not that effective. And that's the other issue. I think we can't reward that behavior. And that's why the sort of noting, I, I've observed you've said one thing and you've done another or observed that you're you're expressing this sort of body language, but then you tell me you're fine. Noting that helps that person develop the the awareness that people aren't going to just allow this to to go on. So my other follow up question on this one too was, what drives it? You know, we all say every time you talk about some difficult quote unquote personality, people always say, "Oh, well, they're insecure." It's our favorite pet peeve to jump. To, and I think we need a little more sophisticated understanding for why people behave the way they do. It's possible insecurity is part of it. I find typically it's much more complicated than that. Absolutely. So you said somebody feels trapped, mm -hmm. meaning there's no way to get what they want in any way, or they feel they're going to get rejected, which is not the same as insecurity. It's if I say it, you're not going to listen to me, or you won't. Uh, respect me. There's various ways in which rejection comes. Are there other drivers that you've seen for this profile? Yeah, I think for, for this one, there's also, you know, sort of fear of failure, right? So if I say, if I'm on board with this, right, and then it fails, will I be held responsible? So I think that that's another important one. Um, and, and of course, there's a, the fear of conflict, right, which is that I'm, I have this opinion and I just feel really uncomfortable expressing it. Um, you know, I do feel like the insecure label is used sort of willy nilly. And the truth is, if you aren't insecure, you are a psychopath, right? We have to feel some insecurity. So using that as an excuse for someone's behavior isn't that instructive because we all feel that way. So I agree it's helpful to think about that. What's really going on here? And I think a lot of times, I, you know, that that sort of trapped uh, description I just shared, it also gets to the sort of feeling powerless. And there's some indication in some studies that that people behave passive aggressively when they don't have access to power, um, because it's a way to actually exert some sense of control. Um, it's a bit of a backwards thinking and not very effective, but that also might be playing in as, as well. I think in the case of this top team, I think the issue is that the individual involved is fearing that they're losing power. And indeed, yeah. they are. It's a truth right. statement. It's not, you're not alone in that. But yeah, that's part of it. And I often believe, too, sometimes when you understand the thing that people are afraid of, you actually understand more about the behavior than anything else. And you all, you just said it as well. All right, Amy, great discussion on the passive aggressive. This is a perfect moment to take a break. So my guest today is Amy Gallo. The book we are talking about is Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, parenthesis, even difficult people, close parenthesis. When we come back from a very short break, I want to talk about passive aggressive's twin, which is the bully, and mm -hmm. kind of dig underneath that a little bit. And then we want to talk about the pessimist. And we've got a few others we hope we can get to. We'll be right back.
Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Amy Gallo. We've been talking about these personalities or prototypes or even situations in which people can behave in a less than civil manner. And this notion that when we experience incivility or watch incivility, it increases our stress, decreases creativity, decreases collaboration, decreases satisfaction with the job, and ultimately All of that has an impact on the performance of me as an individual, as well as the performance of the team. So much so that it even retards healing from a small cut um, on your skin. So that's how powerful this experience of incivility. Now, granted, there may be plenty of people who walk around in the world intending to be obnoxious to everybody that they encounter. I would argue that that's the minority That instead, all of us, as Amy have said, are capable in moments of behaving in ways that we would not say are our finest moments. So give ourselves a little grace and give other people a little bit of grace in this problem. The, the, The deal for this discussion is the notion of what can I do when I experience somebody who's behaving in one of these particular ways so that I'm not having stress, waking up in the middle of the night, worrying about it the next day or the next week or the next six months, the next two years for that matter, and that I feel like I can get some agency, if you will, back over how I manage the context. So that's the notion. All right. So we've just been talking about passive aggressive. I want to talk about the twin to passive aggressive, which is I find is used right, left, and center. That person is a bully. 
I think what most people mean when they say bully is they really mean somebody is is aggressive, probably overly aggressive for their personal taste. Bully has a particular context. So how do you think about bully versus aggressive? And then more importantly, how do we deal with somebody who's being aggressive? Yeah, no, I think that's a great distinction because I think and we have to be careful when we talk about bullies because there are, if you're dealing with someone who is targeting you specifically, is undermining you left and right, being, you know, demeaning, um, perhaps making inappropriate comments, then we're, we're ter- you know, stepping into legal territory, HR territory. And I think we really want to make sure we distinguish the difference between someone who is targeted you specifically and is repeatedly doing things that that undermine you um, versus someone who, you know, maybe is occasionally, as you said, quite aggressive. Maybe their personality is someone who seeks conflict. They're very comfortable with conflict and they maybe bulldoze because of that. They talk over you. Um, maybe they do question your commitment to work. Maybe they do assign you needless tasks. This is a archetype in my book I refer to as the tormentor because it's someone who you might expect to be a mentor, but they do the exact opposite and seem to undermine you at every chance. So I think you want to be, be be distinguished between is this someone who's really out to get you on in a repeated fashion um, versus someone who you know, maybe isn't able to control their emotions, maybe has a very domineering style, um, maybe is someone who's quite resentful um, of you for some reason and is occasionally um, acting out in that way. But as you asked Wanda, the the question is, how do you deal with them, right? So one thing I think, and you mentioned this in, in, I think there's research to back this up, which is that any of us are capable of being that person given the right circumstances, right? What we, if we are given power, if we are given authority, we're given the wrong incentives, we're put in a culture that does not um, value civility or caring for one another, We are there's research that shows we're capable of behaving in these ways that we really resent in others. So I think having a little bit of understanding that it's not a sort of deep, they're not necessarily a deeply flawed human, but they're behaving in a way that's really problematic for that for your collaboration. I think the other thing to really think about um, is the balance of power. Oftentimes, bullies um, wield a lot of power, and one of the things you can do, research has shown, is to try to alter the balance of power. And that doesn't mean you get a promotion over them, you go report them, although that might might be something you do. But really, can you show them that they need you in some way? Do you have a piece of knowledge or information that they rely on you for? Um, Is there a skill that you have that you contribute to the team that no one else has? Because I think reminding the bully that they don't have this sort of sort of unfettered power that you that you do you also have playing a critical role can be one way to alter the dynamic. The other quick tip I'll share um, is also you can have something what I sort of refer to as the meta conversation. And you might even say something as simple as, you know, the way we've been working on this project hasn't really been working for me. I, I, I get the sense you feel the same way. Do you want to talk about the way we work together? Now, that's a that conversation takes a lot of bravery, a lot of courage, especially for someone who's been really rude to you. But you might actually learn that they're frustrated with you, like you're too slow, right? They might There might be something you can actually fix that would solve the incivility in a way. Um, and I don't mean fix like fix about your personality, but just slightly change 
that that could make the dynamic a little, at least a little bit healthier? I have seen people labeled as bullies and not, not that they're bullying because they're not trying to undermine anybody. It's not, it's not personal and it's not with the intention of undermining. So they really are more on the aggressive side and they're willing to be aggressive with just about everybody. Frequently is in the service of getting to an answer quickly. Yes. And they get enormously frustrated if it takes a long time for you to say, here's what we need to do. Here's why we need to do it. And I'm going to fight my cause because I believe passionately that's the right thing. They just get anxious if they can come like get to it. And what they're wanting from you is to come back with, no, here's what I believe. Here's why I believe it. They want that kind of quick back and forth on task and on point. Um, and you frustrate them less if you can figure out how to say your piece quickly, directly. Now, yeah. do you see something similar or different? Oh, very similar. I actually had a, a coaching client once who I, I was coaching because he was seen as aggressive and people were saying, we just can't work with him. It, he's too intimidating. He's too, and you know, once I delivered the feedback, he he was shocked and and he he thought, well, no, I'm just trying to move things forward. This team is so slow. And he, he, you know, it said he came from a family of seven children. And he was like, you, we, the entire dinner table every night was a screaming match. And he said, it was, it's so normalized to me that I don't see it that way. But then I work with these people who don't have, and actually one of his biggest um, detractors, one of the, the people who was really struggled to work with him was an only child. And she said, you know, I grew up in a household where it was just quiet. And I just, the it, the volume was so aggressive to her. And for him, it was just about speed, efficiency, getting to the right answer. And he just couldn't understand why people weren't moving at the same pace. So yes, absolutely. I do see, do see the same thing. And oftentimes it's just about style, right? Talking about interruptions, right? I think we sort of agree it's rude to interrupt someone, but we do it all the time. And and I think our tolerance for it is quite different. So there are people who do it and they don't mean to be rude. They don't, it's not even that they don't value what you have to say or what your opinions are. That's just the way they're used to communicating. And yeah. so I think we just have to keep that in mind. Absolutely. That, that, that might be what's going on. Now you're allowed to say, it breaks my concentration when I get interrupted. I have a really hard time completing my thoughts. Would you mind holding back? And I'm not saying you should kowtow to the bully. The bully should hopefully make some changes once you sort of pinpoint, rather than getting from you're a bully to, or that person's a bully to the interruptions are really problematic or the tone of voice is really problematic. Then you can give feedback on the specific behavior that that I, that is really troubling you. And hopefully that can shift things a little bit to at least get to a place where you have a stronger working relationship. I've seen on multiple occasions, if you drop the language bully aggressive and you get down to the behavior, what is it in the behavior that is really causing problems for me? Like, I feel that you're not respecting my level of knowledge. I feel that you are speaking down to me. You know, though very specific then it is easier to have that meta conversation that says, in effect, look, the dynamic between us is making me not give my best work. So could we talk about, or what's frustrating me is I feel like you're not respecting what I know and what I'm bringing to the table. Let's have a conversation. Are you looking for something from me that I don't know about or, you know, 
And surprisingly, if you do a little bit of role play with those, I find they go better than most people can ever imagine. You just got to prep them. And I'm curious your experience, though, with those. Yeah, absolutely. I think that most people are terrified of having that conversation, especially with someone who they view as aggressive, understandably, right? Who wants to be yelled at or shut down or, and I think you're absolutely right that these things do tend to go better than we expect. Oftentimes we're quite surprised. And even when they go terrible, it doesn't mean that they weren't effective. I mean, I've had situations where I've given feedback to someone, they completely blew their top. They told me I was completely off base. They were wrong. And then three months later, I heard from someone else that I that, that person reported I had given them some really helpful feedback that changed the way they worked. I was like, what? Like, it's still sometimes even if you're not getting the reaction you hope for or that feels comfortable, your message is still being delivered. And I think that's the important part. You can feel good that you said what was on your mind. And my guess is it's getting in there, even if you're not getting that that sort of understanding reaction. I think you're making an important point there about not letting ourselves feel victimized. Mm -hmm. So saying something, doing something about it is the best. And I want to come back just to make sure this is really clear. We've said it already, but I'll be really, really clear. Bullying is somebody who targets you specifically. They actively try to undermine you in very unpleasant ways. They will often do it behind the scenes so that nobody else can witness it. And it is repeated and repeated and repeated. It's not one snarky comment. It's over and over and over in in ways that are really intended to undermine your confidence in yourself. And if that is the situation you're dealing with, seek professional help ASAP. This is not something you just sit there and tackle and handle on your own. For dealing with somebody who's aggressive. I think that's a different story. All right, so let's shift. Let's talk about um, the next favorite one, the pessimist. You know, this person who, regardless what you say, sees the glass says half empty, it won't work. This is, we don't, you know, just terrible. And they take all the energy out of the room, in my experience. You tell which side of the equation I tend to like. <laughs> so yeah. what, what is the pessimist and what do we do? Yeah, I mean, pessimism is exactly as you described, right? Someone who shoots down ideas just immediately goes to all the risks of a situation rather than the, the opportunities. Um, you know, just is is acts as if there's no hope, and um, and there, and there's not not only is there no hope, but there's nothing we can do about it, right? There's sort of a a lack of agency involved as well. You know, the pest. I actually really like the pessimists um, because I think. I think they're sort of the unsung heroes of organizations in that they are pointing, there's so many organizations have this culture of toxic positivity of sort of mm-hmm. agreeing, getting along. Yes, everything's going to work out. Oh my gosh, we can totally reach those targets. Let's shoot for the moon. And I think the pessimists are pointing out real risks. The problem is because we immediately react to them as if they're, they're you know, unpleasant, we don't want to hear what they have to say they're forced to sort of dig in and be doubly pessimistic. And we sort of got on the other end, and I do identify as an optimist, but as you know, at the other end, we're like, no, everything's good, everything's good. And they're like, no, everything's bad, everything's bad, and becomes completely polarized. And I think optimists and pessimists, when they work together, do the best work. And so I think that that's why I really like working with them because I have, I, have, I have one colleague in mind in particular who just is always this naysayer. And it's I can see everyone in the room going, oh, please, why do you have to say that? But it's underneath it. If you sort of 
tear out the sort of negative, the sky is falling exterior, he's making some good points. And I think that's the thing is how do you grant them their premise, right? Allow them to to voice those concerns because it's important to voice them, but then give them some agency so that they understand, okay, those are risks. We're going to mitigate those. And now we have to move forward. And I think the one of the sort of communication tactics I like to use with pessimists is to say, part of me agrees with you that there are real risks here and that we might not succeed. But there's another part, and I have to admit, this part is bigger that thinks we can do this if we are careful, keep those risks in mind and move forward, right? You're trying to sort of tell them they're heard, tell them you're going to consider those risks that they point out or those the the sort of what ifs that they're they're raising and then sort of give them the agency like let's move forward together. Okay. That for me is the best way to work with them. So I want to make sure that I'm not just silencing them that I have heard their real concerns and sometimes with pessimists I kind of have to dig a little bit to get to what the real concern is especially if they've been silenced for a really long time to get that voice up, you know, you think this is going to fail. All right. Why is it going to fail? What are we missing? What would it that we need to turn to? And then to say what would make a difference in mitigating. So it feels like it's really acting. And then to give them some power in making that thing happen. So some agency, if you're talking about it. Okay. That's right. Yeah. All right. Easy to do. All right. So let's go to the next one. The know-it-all. Mm. The person that you can, well, you describe it rather than me. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this is the one I relate to the most, meaning that I do it the most. So it's really, I had to write this chapter through a little bit of like squinted eyes of like, oh, this is painful. Um, This is the person who talks over you, who speaks in a condescending tone. They declare something with a hundred percent certainty when they have no reason to actually be a hundred percent certain. Um, We often think of them when we think about gender dynamics as the mansplainer, and they're, they can be really hard to deal with too, but partly because they really push our buttons and they make us feel small. And it's hard to, to work with someone who makes us feel small. But oftentimes they don't intend to do that or they only are doing it because in organizations, we often reward overconfidence. So it may be that they've had previous experiences when they declared things with 100% certainty, those things moved forward and that was success. They were successful as a result. So one of the things I, one of the things that they really do is interrupt. And I think that's one of the important things I mentioned earlier. You can say something like, I, I lose my concentration when I'm interrupted. Can you hold your thoughts to the end? Right. That's a simple way. They may, may not observe it. You may have to say it five times. You may have to enlist allies in the room who can also say, hey, let's hear what Amy has to say um, before we move on. And, you know, the the other thing with the, with the know-it-all also is I think we can really model some humility. Um, the know-it-alls really... Um, when they feel like they need to be certain, when they need to be confident that that in order to succeed, but if you can show them there's a different way to succeed here, which is that we're humble, right? And I think this is really, if you're a senior leader in an organization, this is incredibly important to say, you know, I don't know what the right answer is. Based on the facts we have, this is what I'm thinking, but I'd love to hear other opinions, right? just to model that humility so they know that this is still, this is a way of being in the organization that still works for them. Do you find that some know-it-alls are just trying to be enormously helpful? 
Like they just feel like they have so much to give and they want to give in every single situation. I mean, I think, I think honestly, I think that's part of what I do when I'm being a know-it-all is I'm like, well, I have the thought on this. I think no one else has said this thing. I have to say it. Right. And then it's like, I have to comment on every single thing someone said, like how frustrating. (laughs) So yes, I think in some ways they think, oh, I have these facts. I have this data. I'm going to share this. Right. I have this viewpoint. No one else has. Um, And that's another option is to find another way for people to share that of like, rather than opening the conversation in the meeting where you know your know-it-all is going to dominate the entire conversation is ask people, can you send me your thoughts ahead of time just so I can, you know, just so we have a sense of where we stand on this, right? Get people to sort of say it via email or via Slack, right? Send your thoughts ahead of time and then you can then you can sort of regulate the conversation a little bit better. And they know I've made my voice heard, right? So it makes them feel a little bit more um, seen as well. Yeah, I think, um, as you said, you know, sort of acknowledging the contributions may help uh, reduce for those who the know-it-all is being driven by, did you hear me, did you hear me, did you hear me? Um, Acknowledging some of that can be really helpful. All right, Amy, two minutes remaining. My favorite last question. We could talk about these forever. Um, What takes you out of your comfort zone? Oh, I'm I'm guessing some other people can relate to this, but raising a teenager right now, (laughs) it puts me every day, puts me out of my comfort zone, partly because the work I do around communication, conflict, right? Everything I think is, is quote unquote, right or effective. She really challenges it. And, and, and not because, and, and I'm not saying, you know, teenagers are unreasonable people, which they are sometimes, but more because she just has a different perspective and it really, she makes me uncomfortable and really makes me think, does, does the advice I give actually work in all environments? And, um, and she challenges me to think is, is, you know, am I being emotionally receptive? Am I, um, considering everyone's feelings, right? Am I doing these things that I purport to do? Um, you know, am I doing them well? And and she's, I'm really growing as as a person, and I'm growing in the work I do um, as a result of being her mother. Fabulous, Amy. I love it. I think many people of of young kids can relate to exactly that phenomena. All right, my guest today is Amy Gallo. The book that we have been talking about is Getting Along: How to Work with Anyone (parenthesis even difficult people) in parenthesis. What a great collection of pieces of advice. One, just to be clear about different behavior patterns, different types. And as you said, ways in which all of us can trip into some of these behaviors. Not that we are flawed, we're all flawed, but you know, something personality flaw as much as we can all do these. And then to think about what can I do that gives me agency, me power, and keeps me from ruminating, worrying about it, and stressing about it. Love the book. Amy, if somebody wanted to find you, where could they find you? Best place is my website, which is amyegallo.com. Also, if you go to Harvard Business Review's site, I've written hundreds of articles there, so you can find a lot of my thinking and writing there as well. Perfect, Amy. Great book, highly recommended, and thanks for being a guest today. Thanks, Wanda. And thanks for joining us. If you've liked this episode, please like us on your favorite podcast server and please send us a comment. We'd love to hear from you either through email, wanda.wellness at leadership-forum.com or just on wherever your favorite podcast server is. We'll see you next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. 
Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.